Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12. Every year, Open Doors Ministries puts out what they call a world watch list. And this is the one from this past year, 2019. I haven't received, I don't, I don't believe they've done the 2020 one yet. But the World Watch List is a ministry that watches the church worldwide in light of persecution. I've heard a variety of statistics, but one of the most recent one I heard was that there have been more persecuted Christians and deaths on because of the gospel in the last century than there was all centuries combined. Now, I realize, you know, population is growing, the church is growing, but, you know, when you think about persecution... Uh, my my guess is most of us, it, it's hard to wrap our brain around that. We don't live in a culture at this point, and trust that it won't be, that where the church is intensely persecuted as other places. Just a few statistics for you to think about this morning as we think about persecution. And we're going to see in the book of Acts chapter 12 where the persecution is, in a sense, ramping up. And it's ramping up through the local government and it's ramping up and it's motivated by those who are opposing the church. In this case, uh, very uh, influential people in Judaism. The church and Judaism or the Jewish faith is splitting more and more at this point. At first it started out as a lot of people saw it as just a kind of an offshoot of Judaism, which in some ways it was. It had its roots and its birth out of there. Jesus being raised in a Jewish home, fulfilling the law, going to the cross, dying for our sins, rising from the dead. But the church beginning in Acts chapter 2 was different than the Jewish faith. And as that became more and more apparent, the persecution ramped up. Well, here we are some 2,000 plus years later. Just a few statistics that are just hard to wrap our brain around sometimes. In 2018, there were 215 million Christians that were persecuted in some form or fashion. That's up last year. 2019, it was up to 245 million, or a 14% increase in persecution. One in nine Christians experience what they call high levels of persecution worldwide. And I'll define what high level means here in a minute. In 2019, 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. On average, that's 11 Christians killed every day. For their faith. 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked, burnt to the ground, this kind of thing. 6,000 or 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in 2019. Number one on the list North Korea. Now, you might wonder, how do they measure all this? Well, let me give you a little bit of a feel for the kinds of things that they look for. They, they have two basic areas of ranking. Uh, pressure, and they use a thumb, you know, that symbol of a thumb. You know, someone's got their thumb on you. You know what that feels like emotionally, physically at times. So there's a pressure from government or the culture as a whole and then there's actual violence, beatings, and obviously death at times. 
So they, they, the pressure, they rank by church life, national life, community life, family life, and private life. And in violence, they rank by, obviously, imp imprisonment, beatings, and, and death. North Korea is number one. And in the area of violence, 65.65.5% of the time, Christians are violently attacked when it comes to per persecution in North Korea. Under church life, national life, community life, family life, and private life, every one of them, 99.9% .9 of the times, that's what happens in a place like North Korea. India. Just heard a report recently about India from our team that went there. Number 10 on the world, uh, this is 50, by the way. China is number 27. We think of those as the bad guys. Well, they're not as bad as they used to be, or at least the bad guys in other places are getting worse. India, number 10. Violence is actually higher than North Korea. 91% of the time, violence is used against Christians in India. Church life, 79%. National life, 89%. Community life, 81%. Family life, 78%. Private life, 77.5%. Is there persecution of the church worldwide? Absolutely. It started back in Acts chapter 12, actually a little earlier than that, and it has continued to today. So what does that mean? It means that the world, the flesh, and the devil are all battling very consistently against the life of Christians trying to discourage, trying to dissuade, trying to distract, trying to stop. And yet, as we already prayed earlier, we pray with the confidence that the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against the church. We are on the winning side, if you like winning and losing. We have already won. The battle has already been won, ultimately, on the cross. The rest is history being played out. But ultimately, God's kingdom will be victorious because we serve the one true all-powerful God, period. That's who we serve. And so we can live with confidence, knowing that he is at work worldwide in places like North Korea, India, and Shafter, California. We're going to talk about the kind of persecution we face. And if you think we don't get persecuted, think again, because it's much more subtle. And in some ways, I don't want to say more dangerous, but it kind of seeps in in different ways into our lives. Let's pray together and then we'll look at God's word. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning to look at kind of one of the sober realities of uh, life as a Christian. We realize, Lord, we are removed a lot from what we just read about in this uh, uh, worldwide persecution inventory. And yet it doesn't mean that our faith is just kind of, uh, you know, there, there's no nothing to... to uh, keep us from growing or, or keep us from living our lives as believers. We know we face enemies even in our own culture. Some are within ourselves. The flesh does not give up the, the battle to control our lives. But we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're always working to uh, redeem areas of our life that have been affected by sin so that we might be more and more free in the life that is found in Jesus. We know that the world is going to work against us. It's a value system that is... Uh, at times in agreement with Christianity, but in times very much contrary to it. And we know, Lord, that there is a spiritual uh, battle going on. We know that we have an, uh, an adversary, but we also have an advocate who's always, always at work.
defending us and strengthening us and helping us to live the life that you call us to live. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us here. Some of us may be discouraged this morning, wondering where you are in the midst of our world, in the midst of our own personal lives. I pray that we would be encouraged. There may be some here this morning, Lord, that are are still considering what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Christ? And I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be open to understand what it means to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior and follow him with all of our hearts, our, our lives, our, to just give ourselves over. Thank you, Father, for that living hope that we have. Fill us with that now and teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at chapter 20 or chapter 12, verses 1 to 24, there's basically two things that I think we can pick out of this that kind of the, the big rocks, if you want to call them that. The first is that earthly rivals, and this is in the form of, of, of human-type uh, adversaries, the first thing we learn is that they use a variety of means to oppose the church. We saw that briefly in what I just read. It's, sometimes it's community life, sometimes it's church life, sometimes it's private life. People in places like India can lose their jobs at times because they're Christians. And you say, well, that's discrimination. And a lot of the people in India say, who cares? We are a Hindu government. And if you're not Hindu, you're not patriotic. We know that feeling here, patriotism and being a good American. Well, if you're a good Indian, you're going to be a Hindu. And if you're not a Hindu, then what are you? You're going against the, you know, the, our heritage, our patriotism. Who do you think you are? And that's some of the atmosphere that they live under. They use a variety of means to oppose the church individually and corporately. It was about this time that King Herod, and this is King Herod I, there were, there's quite a few King Herods in the Bible. This particular one is King Herod, who is the grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus was born. So if that sounds familiar, you're going, wait a minute, which guy is this? Well, he's the grandson. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who, was, who governed Galilee during Jesus' earthly ministry. And so... You can, you can do a study on your own of the various Herods. Herod was somewhat of a name, a title that was given, and, uh, but this is Herod I. It's about the time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, keep in mind, Herod was a practicing Jew. Okay, nothing against Jews, but he was a, a practicing Jew at that time, and really very loved by the Jewish people. In fact, so much so, some of them actually thought he might be the Messiah. They rejected Jesus, so it's like, well... We're done with this guy. Let's move on to the other. Maybe it's Herod. He seems to really like us. He's, he's on our side, so to speak. Intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, James and John, we remember those from the Gospels, put to death with the sword. Boom, he's gone. That's all we hear of him. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, because many of the Jews were beginning to realize, oh, this church that we are hearing about, this way, these Jesus people, and last week we looked at what it meant to be a Christian. Literally, it means to be of the party of Jesus. I don't have to tell you, we're in a presidential year. If, if you miss that, I'm not sure what planet you've been on recently, but it hasn't been ours because it is everywhere. Uh, debates and... Uh, anyway, I won't go there. The point being, our first party affiliation needs to be the party of Jesus. And that's what it literally means to be a Christian, of the party of Jesus. So I don't suggest you put that down if you need to register to vote. That might throw them off a little bit. But in your heart, that's a good place to start. 
He saw that this met with approval among the Jews. He proceeded to seize Peter also, who was definitely a, a rock star of his time. He was a main, one of the main leaders of the church. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, the seven-day celebration after Passover, or in part of that Passover celebration we read about in the book of Exodus, and came in the spring of the year, the day of atonement when Jesus died, and, and all those symbolic things that he fulfilled. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. So do the math, that's 16 soldiers on one guy. Now, why would he need 16 guys to guard one guy? Because back in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, we read this when Peter was arrested before. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy because the church was growing and there was nothing they could do about it. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Not a lock in the world would hold them in when God decided to let them go. So, Herod probably knew about that, and he thought, I'll show them 16 guys. They're going to take turns watching him. He's going to be chained to two at a time. Two others are going to be watching, and they're going to go on rotations of about six hours. He's not getting away this time. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That word, or that phrase, earnestly praying, literally means with hands stretched out. You ever raise children? Sure you have. When they want something, what do they do? Please, right? Yeah, they wear you down or you send them to your room or, you know, they, they, have, they don't just use words. They use physical expressions to say what they want. Well, the Christians were physically showing God, please, Lord. They were stretching out their hands in prayer. Please deliver Peter. Not, not that they didn't care about James. That, that was kind of history. He was with the Lord now. But Peter, they, they earnestly prayed for him with arms stretched out. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. In spite of his situation, God gave him peace. He was sleeping between two soldiers who he just happened to be chained to. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. That phrase, struck Peter on the side, literally can be translated, kicked him in the ribs. Now, why they didn't translate it that way, I don't know, but that's really what it means. In other words, Peter was so much asleep that they, the angel had to kind of kick him in the ribs and say, get up, man, come on. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel said. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He was kind of in a, maybe a little bit of a stupor. Just like, whoa, what is happening here? They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself. In other words, he kind of woke up and realized, wait a minute, where am I now? I'm outside of prison, out on the road. Now I know that without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
Again, not that every Jewish person was bad. It was particularly the Jewish leaders who were stirring the pot saying they were losing power, they were losing control, they were losing influence. The church was growing. And instead of realizing, wow, what's happening? It was more, we hate this. We got to do something about it. Let's get the leader first. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, Mark the apostle, or not the apostle, but the follower of, who, who wrote the gospel of Mark, and we'll see more of him as Acts go on, uh, continues on. When many people were gathered and were praying, Peter knocked at the door entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. A little bit of comic relief here, like, there's no way it's him. But anyway, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. There was a strong belief in that day that every follower of Christ had a a personal guardian angel. I'm not saying that's true or not true. That was just the, the belief of the day. There's certainly... Uh, plenty of evidence in Scripture of the ministry of angels, exactly what they do and how they do it. We're not, we don't have time to explore that right now. But there was a sense that you know, they had their arms outstretched, begging the Lord to deliver him. He did, and then they thought, oh, it must be an angel of the Lord. No way God could do that. Uh, you know, we think the early Christians had it all together. They didn't. They struggled with faith and belief, just like we do at times. Earnestly asking God for something, he gives it to them, and they go, no, it can't be. Kind of like the way we do at times, huh? We struggle sometimes to really believe God and take Him at His word. But Peter kept on knocking, and when he opened the door, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other James being the Lord's brother and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, and then he left for another place. We're not sure where he went, but he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. You can only imagine. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, why was that? That didn't seem fair, right? Well, because according to the Roman soldier handbook, if you want to call it that, if you were guarding someone that was going to be killed and they got away, guess what? You would be killed. If they were to be in prison for a period of time and they got away, you would be in prison. So these guards, they were intending to kill Peter, execute him probably publicly to make an example of him and to get the Jews even more on the side of Herod. And the soldiers are the ones that lost their lives. Persecution and, and earthly rivals, if you want to think of them that way, use a variety of means to oppose the church. There are a lot of different things that we see today. I just read some of them earlier from Worldwide Watch. And, and, and God does give some incredible deliverances at times. We see that with Peter, but we didn't see it with James. We saw it with, we see others in the book of Acts being raised from the dead, like Dorcas or Tabitha, as we read about earlier. And yet, what happened to Stephen? He got stoned to death. How do we explain those things? Well, we we don't really. We don't understand how God chooses to miraculously save some and allow others to go to death or to die. Somehow in his understanding of the bigger picture with we do not see, kind of like the illustration of a a quilt. I know many of you have been involved with quilting or help even today. 
you know, the backside of a quilt is a mess. It's just a tangle of things, right? And you just, if, you, if that's all you saw, you'd think, what in the world are we looking at? But you flip it over, and what do you see? A beautiful quilt with beautiful designs. Well, God is, is quilting his church together in a way that at times only he really sees, and he may or may not choose to allow us to see that at times. But by faith, we trust that he is doing what only he can do. Billy Graham in his book called uh, Angels and, and the angels that uh, it, it, the secret, let me find my right page here. Here we go. Had it in the wrong order. Randy was probably telling me a joke and threw me off earlier. Billy Graham, Angels, God's Secret Servants from 1986. Some of you maybe have that and read it. He tells a story of a man named John G. Patton, I believe is how his name is pronounced, a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Graham goes on and says, was a heroic figure in recent missionary history. One might... Uh, one night, hostile tribesmen surrounded his mission headquarters intent on burning it and killing Patton and his wife. The two of them prayed all through the terror-filled night, asking God to deliver them. When daylight came, they were surprised to see the attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ, and when Patton had an opportunity to ask him what kept them from burning the house and killing them, the chief replied, Who were all those men who were there with you? Patton said, there were no men there, only my wife and I. But the chief said that they had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to encircle the mission station so the tribesmen were afraid to attack. Patton realized that God had sent his angels to protect them. Isn't that an amazing story? And we think, man, yeah, that's the kind of story I like to hear. But there's more to Patton's life. John Patton did not always experience God's provision in that way. His first wife died as a result of problems during childbirth. Seventeen days later, the child also died. That happened early in his missionary career. And he had no one to comfort him. He even had to dig the graves for his wife and child by himself. But he writes about that difficult time. I was never altogether forsaken. See, there's not always going to be a happy ending on earth. We wish there were. We wish everything would just worked out like the movies, so to speak, but they don't. In the end, they will, because God will have the final say. He will have the final victory. But in the meantime, we're going to face a variety of means against the church today all over the world. So as I thought about that, and I thought about our setting. United States of America, 2020. What kind of persecution do we face? No one's attacked my home. No one's attacked my family. No one's attacked my church. No one's attacked me. I'm not aware of any of you having those kinds of experiences, and yet is there attack? Yeah, I believe there is. I want to suggest two ways that the church today in the U.S. is being attacked and persecuted by the culture. The first is, I believe, that there's a subtle message that says you and I and what we believe is completely irrelevant to the conversation of the United States. 
It doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just a religious belief. It's just private. You live your life the way I do, but don't tell me how to live my mind, how my life should be lived. And it has nothing to do with life in the U.S. You ever feel that way? Like we have no voice. We, we're just, we're here, we can vote, we can pray, we can do certain things, but a lot of the culture says, we don't really care what you believe and who you are. We're just going to do what we want to do. I think that's one of the ways that we are sometimes tried to be put in our place, if you will. Okay? Another way, though, I think that is in, it's in some ways more damaging to our faith personally at times and to the church as a whole is what I would call simply distractions. Distractions. You think about all of the options we have in our nation to choose from on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis And I'll just say one, everybody's got a smartphone anymore, right? And we have Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts and this account and that account. And how long can we go without checking those things? Not very long. How many likes did you get for that last picture you posted? Or how many of this or that? Okay, that's just one area. How about activities? Boy, parents, I want you to know, you know, I, we raise children here. Our kids are now growing 25 and 22. And while we were raising children, we had to make choices just like you. How, what, what activities are they going to be involved with? What are, and, and it was not bad things like, gee, should we let our son go to this wild party and drink till he's sick? No, that was not a choice that was faced, nor had that been a choice of his. We would have gotten in his grill and said, no, that's not happening, pal. It was more... Are there good things that he wants to do, like a lot of his friends are doing, but would take him away from the importance and the critical times in his life of being involved in a church family or our daughter? And you know what? That's more today than it was back then. Just in the time we've been here, we've seen the activity level in our culture, in our little town, our little communities around us, ramp up to the point where, man, you've got a lot of choices to make with your kids and your own personal life. And it's not bad stuff. It's all good stuff. So the choice is not so much do I do good or bad. It's do I do good things or do I do the best thing? And what is the best thing? The best thing is to fall in love with Jesus. And if the activities that we're involved with or we're allowing our kids to be involved with are not helping them in some ways or distracting them or you or I from falling in love with Jesus, we're being persecuted. And we're subtly being undermined in our faith. Philippians chapter 1, Paul prays this for the church at Philippi. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern, make good choices, wise choices, what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You see, we don't always get faced with good or bad. We get faced with good and best. And the way we can support one another and pray for one another is that we are discerning in our choices so that we're seeking what's best for us. The kingdom of God, the message of Christ, a growing, abiding, strong faith. What was the Ephesians church accused of in Revelation chapter 2? They had lost their first love. Ephesus was a wealthy area with lots of choices. Not always bad ones, 
but very distracting choices. We can get distracted to the point where our faith means very little after a while because we are seeking other things that take away our energy and our loves and our dedication to the point where it means very little. I think that's one of the worst things we face in the United States right now. And we've got to face it head on. And we've got to make some hard choices at times. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to hit us at every turn that they can. And sometimes it's very direct, like in places like India and North Korea. Sometimes it's very subtle. Both damage. They damage their faith and they affect the church. Hard choices, but church choices that need to make, be made. One of the things I love about places like Hume and Heartland is they get kids away from all the distractions. You know what? You don't get any cell coverage up at either one of those places. It's zero. So the phones go in the backpacks, the phones go away, and they talk to one another, they talk to the Lord, they worship, and their lives are changed. We need to do the same thing. Find ways to pull away from all the distractions and worship. Jesus gives a parable in the book of Mark, and I'll kind of finish this point with this, talking about the, the importance of God's Word and how the point of God's Word is to produce fruit in our lives. It's not just head knowledge like, oh, I know the answer. It's the answer is changing me from the inside out. And so he gives the parable of the soil and the seeds, and in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain or did not bear fruit. And then he goes on later in that chapter to explain what he's talking about. What do you mean the distractions and all this kind of stuff? So in Mark chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19, he says this, Still others like seeds sown among the thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. That, my friends, I believe is a church in the United States. Very unfruitful. Very knowledgeable. But very unfruitful because there's so many distractions. It pulls us away from the truth that sets us free and gives us the power to live the lives that God has called us to live. Well, the second thing is, is that earthly rivals not only use a variety of means in, in various cultures. This, you know, you pick the culture and, and, and it's an active battle. But never never, never ultimately escape the justice of the Lord. So if you're into winning and losing, the story is not over yet. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, went from the south to the north, and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon up in that area, and it was an economic issue. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they departed on the king's country, on the king's country for their they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So there was an economic thing going on, a trade war, if you want to call it that. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, which historians would say was sewn with silver, and in the sun it glistened. As he stood up there, I mean, it's like, whoa, what is going on? Who is that guy? That's Herod. Oh, wow. And he delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. In other words, they were worshiping him. What was his faith association? Judaism. Did he know better? Absolutely. He knew that 
the law was very specific. There will be no other God before me. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You see, in spite of the opposition of the word of God, of, the, of, the, of earthly rivals, the word of God and the church will continue to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow because there is no earthly power or heavenly power that will keep that from happening because Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Dr. Alan Redpath says this, let's keep our chins up and our knees down. Keep our chins up and our knees down. I appreciate the words of Psalm 37. The whole psalm is dedicated to the idea of the bad guys seem to be winning, but the Lord reminds the writer, no, no, not in the long run. I will get the final victory. Just the first uh, 11 verses. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. You see, history is littered with the faded memories of brutal dictators, tyrants, and totalitarian governments. But the church continues to grow. Matthew 16, 18. Let's say it together. It's going to be up on the screen here in just a second. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped over Luke 1. That was a good one too. Mary said that. We'll read that one another time. How about Christmas? That's a good time to read Luke 1. (laughs) Let's read this together. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Take that to your spiritual bank. Deposit it, and live with confidence. Because yes, we have earthly rivals in a variety of ways, and they're going to use a variety of means to try to destroy the church, distract the church, discourage the church. But my friends, in the end, Jesus wins every time. No one ever escapes the justice of God. I get an email alert that I believe John Penrose from Children to Love connected me to probably the first time I went to India. It actually comes from a Catholic news source, but they keep a very close eye on persecution. And, and even within this earthly time, there's still justice that's being meted out and, and making sure that you know God's word is going forth. It says, justice for Indian Christians wrongly accused of conversion. Church leaders and activists in India are celebrating the acquittal of eight Christians who had been falsely accused of kidnapping 60 children for the purpose of converting them to Christianity. Sometimes those kinds of false rumors are 
are, are railed against Baraka. Oh, they're just kidnapping kids and bringing them in there. No, they're not. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that gets started in cultures to try to make the church look bad. The six men and two women were freed on February 18th by the criminal court in Ratham in the central state of Madhra Pradesh. Justice has finally been done, said Tamina Aurora, director of the legal team of Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian forum that took up the case. But we must not forget the toll that such false cases take on families. No one should be targeted for their faith. The anti-conversion laws are tools to harass and target Christians and should be repealed since they restrict the freedom of religion guaranteed under the Constitution of India. If you want to hear more about India and what's happening there, talk to Kelly, talk to John Penrose, and they will tell you story after story of how in India persecution is ramping up. So a couple questions for us to think about as we conclude here this morning. I'd encourage you to maybe even write these down and make it part of your, your prayer list that you keep wherever you Keep a prayer list. I encourage you to do something like that. What is your greatest concern for the spread of the gospel and ap- opposition in our culture? It might be distractions, as I mentioned. It might be something else. But what are some of your greatest concerns about the spread of the gospel as we, as part of God's greater church in the U.S., serve him? The second thing is, who do you know that may be facing the realities of earthly rivals in places like India, praying for people like Kieran and Lakshmi, praying for leaders in other parts of the world that you may know their names, you may not, but we lift those countries before the Lord as they face some very stark realities of persecution. And so we want to pray for our nation, want to pray about earthly rivals that we see opposing the gospel in various ways. We want to lift up the church, not only here, but worldwide. I'd like to invite our worship team if they'd come forward. Let me invite you to stand as we close in prayer. Maybe some things are on your heart and mind now, people you're aware of. Just pray about those as we close and let's worship together. Let's pray together. Let's just take a moment now silently before the Lord and each of us just Lift up those, those earthly rivals that we see in our own culture and in other places of the world. Just bring those before the Lord and, and ask him to uh, open our hearts and our minds to recognize those when they come. Let's take a moment now to pray for those that we're aware of that are facing some real opposition. And it it may be in our own culture. It may be in other parts of the world. People like Kiran and Lakshmi who are are in so many ways on the front lines of, of, uh, of an intensifying persecution in a place like India. We just want to lift them before the Lord. So let's do that now for just a moment. Lord, we thank you for the time you've given us this morning. Thank you that we can come to this place and we can worship you. And Lord, we we do live in a culture that is very, very distracting at times. There's so many 
options of things to do. And they're not necessarily bad things. That's the hard part. There are, many of them are good, healthy, wholesome things. But sometimes, Lord, as, as American Christians, we can get so wrapped up in all of the things to do that we forget the most important things. And we gradually begin to lose our first love. And that first love has to be you, Lord, because when we have that, it puts all things in perspective. And so, Lord, as Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, I, I pray for our church in particular and, our ch- and, and the church throughout our nation that you would help us to make wise choices. Give us discernment to know not just what's good, but what's best for our lives. Help us to know what's best for our children. Help us to know how to make those choices day by day, Lord, as we're faced with just such a variety of things that can distract and keep us from the most important things. And so, Lord, we just lift that before you. We also lift the church before you worldwide in places like India and North Korea, and we do pray for Karen and Lakshmi, asking that you'll strengthen them today. Thank you for their faithful service to you at Baraka Orphanage and throughout the Baraka churches. Lord, we know with confidence that you are building your church and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. Help us to keep our chins up and our knees down as we look to you in worship and in prayer. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.